Good morning or good afternoon or good evening and welcome to another episode of Japanese Language Teachers of Australia podcast and today it is my great pleasure to introduce Lee Cohen Sensei from Griffith University. Uh, Lee Sensei, kia Thanks a lot, Shingo. And yeah. if we get started with your bit of an introduction about yourself, what you do and what your background is very briefly. So I'm married and I live on the uh, Gold Coast, where I taught Japanese at Palm Beach Crumbin State High School. And um, then Qantas was um, looking for people to run a Japanese course. And uh, I tried to fit that in for a while. And I then realized that lots of people needed Japanese trainers. So I left high school and I ran the Gold Coast Language Center, where I trained Qantas staff and I worked at the... Uh, at the casino and at a number of high-end fashion stores, etc. Then I couldn't really deal with those, the small people, the people that ran coffee shops, etc., that needed to speak Japanese to all these new clients. So I started the Gold Coast Language Center, which I did for a, a few years. But then I realized I actually like teaching more than being a, a businessman. And at that time, Griffith University was looking for lectures in Japanese. So um, I moved to, to Griffith, where I've been for about 30 years now. Two of my daughters have taught Japanese. We lived in Japan for a year. I'm president of the Modern Language Teachers Association of Queensland on the Gold Coast. I run a language teachers forum monthly at South Bank in Brisbane. And I've just returned from taking students to Japan for a month on my 53rd trip to Japan. Well, that's a lot of trips that you've taken. And so what was your very first encounter with the Japanese language or culture? So I'm assuming it's going to be a very long time ago, but if you could it was share a <laughs> long time ago. And my, my sister had a, had a pen pal in Japan and she sent these beautiful letters but then my sister got tired of answering them and I felt very bad for this girl so I started writing to her and I think that's got me interested in Japanese and I was studying um, French at university at the University of Queensland and um, so then I decided my second year I'd take up Japanese and I think it was really writing to this girl that gave me the interest but really got me into it. Okay so so what are the some of the inspiration behind you wanting to become a Japanese teacher in the first place? I think I just sort of fell in love with the, the country because it was so different. I'd studied French at high school, enjoyed French and still liked speaking French, but the culture's not so different as it was from Japan. So it got me in and I, I studied for two years and did a dip ed and then went to Japan with, with a, another student from the class at the, at the end of that for my first tour and traveled around and I guess I've been in love with Japan ever since. Okay so you've been teaching for more than 30 years. Mm. How do you think the Japanese education has changed on the Gold Coast or in Queensland comparing to where you first started to it is now? I think we came a long way and we were doing really well but that with the national curriculum and the new assessment Japanese teachers in schools seem to be less enamored with the system. We had very few uh, year 12 students doing the um, at our Gold Coast Languages Speech Contest and the Brisbane Language Speech Contest this year because they were just too busy with assessment, which I think is a pity. But at least we've got 
teachers that have trained well and、um, have experience in Japan. So that's an advantage, I guess. So, do you think the Japanese students or the students who are studying Japanese have increased dramatically at a certain point, or has it been a gradual increase? I think it's been a gradual increase at Griffith University. We had really good numbers in 2020 despite COVID, but the numbers have dropped a little bit, or actually dropped about 40% in 2021 and 2022, unfortunately. And part of it is the fact that we have fewer Chinese students and we're trying to go away from online teaching. But part of it seems to be that high school students haven't been able to do their Japan tours and excursions and things. And as I said, they Seem to not be enjoying the new assessment, so there seems to be few of them coming on. So I hope with COVID almost over, next year we see、um, numbers coming back to what they were before. Okay, so that's, I guess, one of the challenges that a lot of the schools and teachers have faced. But what are your challenges you personally faced in your professional career? I think only just time, <laughs> not having enough time to, to do all the things that you want to do in, in both high school and at university, and sometimes dealing with admin. But、uh, if you're very keen in, in your area, the admin are aware of that and then they try to accommodate you. So, yeah, no really big challenges other than time. So, you taught at high school before you became a university lecturer. What are the, some、That's, of the differences between teaching in high school and teaching in university, you think? I guess in my day it was year eight.、Um, at high school, it's year seven now that is compulsory. So sometimes there were some, some difficulties with, with those grades, but I always found that the students going on and choosing to do Japanese after that were really motivated. And of course, at university, If they choose to do a Japanese course, they're already super motivated. So, you know, it's great teaching motivated students. What, what do you think are your big achievement or something you're proud of? I guess I'm completing my PhD. It's in the role of furigana in、uh, Japanese script for second language learners of Japanese. So, a couple of the things that I said was that furigana should be below the line rather than. Above the line, so that you can cover it up if you want to. And the furigana should be exactly under the particular kanji, not just a range, so that you can see exactly which they were. And I've been happy that a number of book publishers have taken that advice and, and changed the way they present script. Proud to be the Japanese field of study leader at Griffith University at the moment. And yeah, having、um, ticked off 53 <laughs> trips to Japan now. And I'm also a life member of the MLTOQ, which I'm quite proud of. Okay,、um, so just a bit curious about your PhD topic regarding the Furigana, and I'm pretty sure other teachers who listen to this would be as well. But what are your main findings? Yeah, I think what I ended up with was saying that Furigana is a little bit like the training wheels on a bicycle, that when you're learning to ride, they're very Very helpful, but once you learn how to ride the bike, you just want to get rid of them. And so, Furigana is good for、um, beginning students, but for more advanced students, I think they get annoyed with Watashi has、um, Furigana on it. They feel, you know, feel like a child, and I know that kanji. So, perhaps we need a lot, a lot less Furigana as students、uh, advance. 
at what point do you think the students should start reading without, I guess, a training wheel? At high school, I'm, I'm not sure because when I was in teaching in high school, I used to write everything in script and then everything in Romaji. But I've since realized that, of course, people, if you write the Romaji, if you, if you offer that, then that's what people are going to read. And really, they have to be forced to become familiar with uh, the script, you know, particularly Hiragana and, and Katakana. And then as, as the kanji are taught, I guess you need it on all the kanji until you've explicitly taught the kanji and then they shouldn't have furigana again. But if the furigana is there, that's what they're going to read. And there's some research that shows that, you know, you need to be concentrating on the line below. But it seems that when you're reading the furigana, you do take notice of, um, of the one line below or, or the one line above whichever it might be, and, and you do read the kanji, but at, at some point when the students are quite advanced, there should be a lot fewer furigana. Um, so what are the, the traditional Japanese teachers in Japan's opinion on your approach of furigana should be below, not above? Yeah, I'm not sure what they think. And of course, word only allows you to put it above, which is a little bit annoying and it's it's quite difficult to do it below. But but it's the textbook writers in the US and Australia and Japan that have read my PhD and, and my papers and have changed their format. No one's actually said it was because of <laughs> Lee Kerwin, and, um, but it happened all roughly at the same time. So I was very pleased to be able to you know, push that a little bit and hopefully it, it helps people learn. Yeah, we'll be interested to try out and I'm assuming it will be better to start off from the very beginning rather than change you know halfway through teaching say year 11 and 12 I'm assuming yeah I think so yeah and once you've taught hiragana then if there's furigana on all the kanji then at least they're seeing what normal Japanese looks like and I mean adult Japanese can't read something that's written all in hiragana they find that sure. very difficult so at least it's natural script then and people gain automaticity it's called by seeing groups of kanji together whether it's you know as simple as nihongo something like that you need to have that in japanese because that's what real japanese script is written in if you gain automaticity in recognizing not exactly recognizing but being able to see nihongo in hiragana it was one word, I guess. It's a it's a useless skill because nothing's written all in hiragana. So you have to gain this automaticity at the groups of kanji, and furigana helps to do that. Very interesting topic, and I'm pretty sure we can just you know spend next couple of hours talking <laughs> about it. But um, are there any way that listeners can look up your paper? Yeah, I think my PhD is in the University of Queensland Library. So okay. they could access it through the University of Queensland Library, I think. They could email me on l.kirwan, K-I-R-W-A-N, at griffith.edu.au, and I'd be happy to send them a, a copy. Okay, well, great. So moving on to the, like, the advice that you would give to beginning teachers, or for those who might be thinking of changing a career to Japanese mm. education, what advice would you give to those people? I think you need to have a real passion for the language to be a successful teacher of Japanese. And more than that, you, you need to be actually interested in your students. I just started a, a brand new um, class today, so I got them 
mid first year students. So I got them to do a little jikoshokai and what their interests were. And then I was able to follow up on those interests. And if they think you're interested in them and they can figure that out in about 30 seconds, then I, th I think you, you've won. So having that passion and they can, they can tell that if you're one of the t those teachers that just goes through the motions and just hoping that the, the class will be over before long, the students can sense that too, but I think I'm successful because I do have a real passion for the language and teaching the language. I love teaching and um, and I'm interested in the, the students. You know, next time you come up with a maybe a hobby that, oh, that's right, Mary, you, um, you're into that, right? And that sort of thing. Maybe considering tours to target countries. That's always been a big thing with me, both at um, high school and at university pretty well every year. I've taken a, a Japan tour mm -hmm. at some stage and just the idea, just the excitement that we're going to do that uh, motivates students um, incredibly too, I think. So when you're planning your Japan trip and it's a, a lot longer than normal high school study tour, mm. How do you decide where you go each year? Because you've done it for over 50 times. So I'm assuming it's not exactly the same <laughs> every single time. It was actually interesting this time because there hadn't been a tour since the end of 2019. And I take my tours in November and December. So I think I actually just picked out all my actual favorite spots. Whereas um, normal years I'd toggle between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example. But actually I like both those. I like to go somewhere different that I haven't been before, but after 53 times, there's only a few islands left that I haven't been to. I went to Amami Oshima Island this year and one of my graduate students from 20 odd years ago, working in a shochu company there and organized um, lots of great activities for us, bushwalking and kayaking and swimming and even catching uh, yellowfin tuna and learning how to cut them into sashimi. So that was something really special. And I also took a, a free day in Nagasaki and went to the Goto Islands because I've been intrigued with those islands off the coast of uh, Nagasaki. And that was really a beautiful place. So mm -hmm. I'll have to look at the map and find the last few islands that I haven't uh, <laughs> been to yet. I think Sado Island and above Niigata is one of the places I, I look for, but they have to be places that, you know, there's something unique to do there. There are a lot of cities like Nagoya, for example, that I really like visiting. I've got good friends there, but I don't take tours there because there's nothing particular that you can't do anywhere else. So, you know, places like Nagasaki, I like um, Matsuyama in Ehimeken in Shikoku with the castle and temples with hidden passages un underneath and a little nearby town of Uchiko where you can go into a kabuki theater and actually play with all the, you know, turn the, the stage around and all sorts of things like that. I like places where there's there's cool things to do. So you have to you have to sit, look at the map um, because, you know, you've got to try and not have too much distance between the places you, you go and, um, yeah, work it out from there. But anyway, it's good <laughs> at the end of the day. But I, I feel a bit disappointed that most school trips go to Tokyo, Kyoto and um, maybe Hiroshima and they're all big cities and Japan's a beautiful country and it's really important that you go at least once. You go inland to cross the mountains to Takayama or or anywhere that's that's just not on that main sort of Tokaido 
Sanyo Shinkansen, where it's all just built up land. I think it's important to at least have somewhere that's not a big city that you stay in. Do the university students get to have any contribution on where they might be interested in going, or is it just purely down to you on where, you, where they go? No, they quite a number of them. Maybe a third of them have been on high school tours to those three cities. So um, I'm just trying to find you know new places for them to go. I get about normally about 70 applications. This year I got 60, even despite COVID and people still still worried, was it safe to go to Japan? And I only take 20 uh, because I've decided that's the maximum number that I really want to deal with on a tour. So sure. I do get to sort of propose the tour first and then they apply. And because our university tour is actually a course, there's some assessment, then they're eligible for overseas help loans from the government of $9,000, which goes okay. on their HEX bill. So they have to pay it off sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. But it, in the old days, when it was just a my fun tour, it was only students that could afford to go that would go now pretty well everyone can afford to go. So yeah, but I do get to pick and choose. So I do get usually a, a group of very good students. And so that brings me to what's what do you think is the best job about being a Japanese ed- educator? I'm pretty sure there are many things to you can talk about, but what are the, some of the few things that you enjoy about being a Japanese educator? Look, I get paid for doing what I love. <laughs> and I think I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, it's nice to wake up in the morning and, and look forward to what you're doing, whether it's, um, it's teaching a class or organizing a dinner excursion that night or planning your, your trip to Japan. It's all lots of fun. You know, I do it for nothing, but they actually pay me. <laughs> yeah, that's the best thing for me is just being able to, to do what I love as a job. Finally, what is your favorite Japanese word or phrase? Oh, there's quite a few, of course, but I, I think um, maybe natsukashi. <laughs> it's one of those Japanese words that doesn't quite have a, an English equivalent. And I find myself using that word all, all the time, talking about things in Japan. Even today, I showed some photos of the tour and two students that were on the Japan study tour were actually in the class. And um, I use that word again, natsukashi. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Well, thanks very much for your time today. And if you're enjoying the podcast, um, please consider supporting us. And there is a coffee website, which is basically you can support us by as little as $1. So if you're enjoying it, then if you'd like to hear more, then please do. But other than that, uh, Lee Sensei, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for, um, for offering this, this service. It's um. Yeah, it's great for people to learn new things. Thanks very much.